course, my, my mission was, was key in helping support my work in the other topics, as I mentioned. Um, but I have to thank the, the Secretariat team. They did such a fantastic job in supporting me as chair, but supporting the whole negotiating group because they received emails, I would say even hundreds of emails, almost every day from members asking questions or asking about a meeting or requesting consultations. They helped me build the schedule for consultations. They helped me think um, around the ideas of the text and substantively uh, advised me on some issues. Um, so it was, I mean, I, I really have to thank this, the secretary team for their, for their work. I think it was, it was fantastic and it's a clear example of the quality and professionalism of the secretary staff we have in the organization. And I, I also have to thank my wife <laughs> yes. because of course, of course, many of the chores that, that I was supposed to be doing at home, um, she took over them willingly, of course, um, so that I could focus in the negotiations. I was arriving pretty late at night, not just in the ministerial, but we had during the long weeks. Yeah, during the two and a half years, we had long weeks during COVID. I was basically almost the only ambassador actually going away from, from the house to go into the organization to be able to hold meetings because we had to control the platform from the, from the meeting rooms. Uh, so while everyone else was taking the, the, the meetings at home with their family, etc., I had to be almost all day, all days, every day in, in the organization holding those meetings. And that was very important for the, for the process, but I think that, that, uh, that my wife has to, had to stand a lot of, of and had a, had a lot of patience throughout this, this time. Uh, with me, so I really have to thank her, thank her for, the, for her patience, for supporting me as well in all those things I was supposed to be doing at home that, that I wasn't really uh, able to do. And she took over, over that, um, those, those, those topics. So, so no, it was, it was great. I'm really thankful to her. You're listening to the Rodolfo Rivas Project. My dad has had big conversations with other people around the world and here in Geneva. He loves it and he's all crazy about it. Remember to have fun listening to it, the Rodolfo Rivas Project. You are listening to the Rodolfo Rivas Project. I am Rodolfo Rivas, your host. You are in for a treat today. My guest is Ambassador Santiago Wills, permanent representative of Colombia to the World Trade Organization. I was thrilled to talk to Ambassador Wills and had been looking forward to this conversation for a long time. But unfortunately, he has been very busy with the fishery subsidies negotiation at the WTO pretty much since he arrived to, he arrived to Geneva as an ambassador. Still, after the successful outcome during last month's 12th ministerial conference, I thought it would be an excellent opportunity to hear directly from him how he experienced the negotiation in the hours leading to the historical outcome. During our conversation, he shared insight into how the negotiations developed during crunch time. But before that, we talked about his career and interest in music, which almost took him down a different path. Nevertheless, music remains important to him, and we discuss how it was likely helpful in his negotiation approach. He also talks about his first encounter with international trade law and policy, which was in the form of the John H. Jackson moot court competition, which had a different name at the time, but it didn't matter, and his team won. From then on, he was hooked. We talked about many other things, even briefly about Rockstars and Mick Jagger. Our conversation was insightful, but fun. Ambassador Wills is a class act, and I want to thank him for his time and generosity. Plenty of other topics were covered off mic, but perhaps 
it's an excuse to do a second part. In the meantime, I am convinced you will enjoy this one. So do yourself a favor and listen to this conversation. The Rodolfo Rivas Project is available on all major platforms or wherever you get your podcast. You can also find us on Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, and LinkedIn. Please help spread the word by recommending us to your friends or enemies. A small act like liking, subscribing, and or reviewing is greatly appreciated. Thank you. The views, thoughts, and opinions shared in the conversation belong to the individuals sharing them and do not necessarily represent the views of their employers. Hello, Ambassador uh, Wills. Thank you very much for accepting my invitation and your time. No, thanks so much for, for being here. It's, it's great to, to be in your podcast. <laughs> Thank you very much. I, I really want to talk about what just happened in the ministerial. Uh, from your vantage point, I would be really interested in hearing your, your, how you experienced it. But before that, like, I would like to know a bit about yourself, if, if that's okay. Uh, I understand you... You, you're from Colombia, of course. <laughs> uh, can you tell me a bit about how it was growing up in Colombia? Yeah, well, yes, as, as you mentioned, I'm, I'm Colombian. Uh, I was born and raised in Colombia. Um, I mean, in, in my case, I, I had a very say, stable childhood, but when, when I was growing up, Colombia was not in the best situation. Uh, of course, it's a different country now. We're doing great and... and uh, it's very safe, but at the time it wasn't um, very safe. Uh, we had all these drug issues and security issues, the guerrilla, cartels, etc. Uh, that I'm very happy to say that that is no longer the case. Um, so, so yeah, I mean, as as, as a child, you're, you're not necessarily aware of everything that's happening, but you can see how families around you and, and family members around you um, are having second thoughts of certain things that could be done or could not be done. Um, so it was, it was a mix of things. While I was a child, I wasn't really aware of what was happening, of course. Uh, so I felt like it was a very stable childhood. Um, but then, of course, I realized that there were some concerns that you wouldn't have those concerns somewhere else at yeah. the time. Um, and this is why I'm so happy that, that Colombia has had a 180-degree shift from, from that time. And it's, now it's thriving. It has a very uh, stable economy. Um, it's very safe to go and visit, uh, even for Colombians within... Colombia now we can travel without any limitations because at some time it was hard to leave the big cities. I mean, being completely honest. But nowadays, just great. So now I've, I'm, I'm also discovering the new Colombia since uh, some years ago. And uh, you're saying that you, like, when you were a child, you couldn't really, you couldn't really experience all of these things. But maybe somehow they were uh, getting into into you. Somehow they influenced you. Yes, I think so. I mean. At the time, it would be hard to say that that I was aware of everything that was happening because as a child, you're not thinking on all of these things. Uh, and, and, and I really appreciate the, the efforts of, of my family in making sure that I could have a good childhood and not be concerned about security issues. Um, but of course, I could see the, the discussions within the family with other family members on whether in holidays you would be able to travel outside of Bogota or not or do this or that. Um, so, so it did have an impact. My, my wife, Juliana, uh, she's not from, she wasn't born in Bogota, in the city, but in a nearby town. Uh, it's a beautiful city, by the way, called Ibagué. Um, 
and he, she, she, she with her whole family had to leave Ibagué because of security reasons. So, so since I, I've met her, it, it has al also opened a bit my eyes on how was a different, a different life outside of Bogota. I see. Um, and it's, it, it, it was a very sad moment for, for Colombia. I think it was very, it was terrible. But, um, but again, this is why I'm so happy that now we have a different country and it's, it's just beautiful to go and visit. And the reason I ask that is because I was wondering, I understand that you're a lawyer, so I was wondering if that perhaps had something to do with your interest in becoming a lawyer. No, I don't, I don't think so. I, mean, I come from a family of lawyers, to ah, be honest. Okay, so that's, so that's both my father and my mom, they're both lawyers. My older brother was a lawyer, or is a lawyer. My younger brother is a lawyer and an economist, but, but he also studied law. Um, but to be honest, I became a lawyer almost by surprise. Oh, of course, the law, the, the law speech has always been present in, in my family and when we were having dinner, we were discussing these interesting topics and of course law was the underlying uh, topic. But I was, I was actually going to study music ah. for quite a while. Okay. So I started playing the piano since I was maybe 10 years old, I think, or 9 or 10 years old. Um, and I liked it so much. And when I was in ninth grade in high school, I started studying music in, in a university in Colombia, in La Javeriana. So I started doing this program that would allow me to start the career, the professional career afterwards when I graduated from high school, uh, more advanced than if I would have waited until I graduated. So I did around almost six semesters, almost three years of, of music in, in the university in this specific program. Um, but law has always been part of, of, of me as well because of my family. Uh, my parents were thrilled that I was going to study music. And they were supporting me a lot. So it was, it was quite a surprise for them when after I took the exams and I was accepted in both music and in law, I decided to go into law and not music <laughs> because they, they were convinced I was going to study music. So, so it was really my own, my own choice. It was, I just, I just felt that uh, living out of music, it's not an easy, yeah. I'm not saying that in law is easy, but in music, you need a lot of patience. You need to, to I mean, it's just a different, industry a different sector so at that time I said I think I better pursue law uh, and keep music as as for me as a hobby I mean yeah. music shouldn't be a hobby it's something very serious but for me it's a, it's a hobby yeah. and I am really surprised what you're saying that your parents really supported a career in music because for me it was the opposite I wanted to become a filmmaker and they didn't support it at all oh. <laughs> <laughs> and I thought that that was like something that came from from like the Latin, Latin American mentality but like I see that in your case it, it was not it, yeah, it was not. I mean, I, I, I think they would, they would have supported different, different uh, ways that I, I, I could have gone through. Um, my father and my mother, they both loved uh, that I played the piano and it was my own initiative when I was around nine years old. They had a piano at home. Uh, uh, it was more like piano furniture because it was an antique. Yeah. Um, and I remember I, I used to listen to songs and started playing them in the piano. So at some point I said to my mom, Okay. Why, why, I, why don't I just start some classes? It would be great. Uh, and I started, and I was, I was playing fairly good for my, for my age at that time, so they were very happy. So they thought, this is, this is great. I mean, somebody that, that's going to go a little bit different, in a different path than, than law and, and dedicate in, in his life in music. And I think that's why they were surprised. But they were, they were very supportive. And, and well, they, they introduced me to this program in the university. Before that, of course, I had piano lessons for basically every year. Um, so, so yeah, they were, they were quite supportive. And what kind of music was it? Like, was it classical music or...? So when I started playing, yes, I started with classical music and I think that's 
I mean, I think that's a must in the sense of, of uh, mastering a bit the ability and, and virtuosity and stuff like that, reading music sheets and everything. Um, but when I started the program at the university around ninth uh, grade in school, um, I moved into jazz oh, because okay. once I was there, I sort of discovered this different type of music and piano became from classical to, to jazz piano on, on my side. I was part of the jazz ensemble of the university for a while in, in that program. Um, so, so yeah, I discovered that part of it and I loved it. So since then I've been more into, into jazz type of music. I still um, have a couple of bands back in Colombia with whom I, I, I play once in a while, um, but it's more dedicated to jazz. Yeah. And jazz is, is a bit about improvisation as well. It is, <laughs> it is. And, and you know, I must say that, that um, it, helped, it has helped me a lot. That's, that's a, actually, I want to hear more about this. Uh, may, well, maybe we can talk about it now. And how do you think that this, because you mentioned that music has been always a part of your life, and I imagine that it's still on, but a part of your life even now. But what are the, some of the things that you feel that have like uh, bleed into your professional practice? Well, there's, there's many aspects of music, I think, that somehow has an effect in, in my professional practice. So, Um, maybe one thing that that um, comes to mind when I was studying law in Los Andes University in Bogota you had the chance to take two careers so I was already in the seventh semester of law that's uh, the almost fourth year of law and I said you know what maybe no I this was like fifth semester and I said maybe I'll try out again with music and pursue both careers So I went to the music department, I took the, the test, everything, um, and they said, check the list that will be published in the website uh, at the end of the semester to see if you passed. So I checked the list and I wasn't there and I said, oh, well, this is a sign that I should just stick with law. with law. When I was about to graduate and I went to the law school and say, okay, what are the courses that I'm missing that I have to take this semester to graduate? I found in my folder the admission letter from the music department. So apparently, I, the instruction I got from the music department was mistaken because inst instead of checking the website for new applicants, I was supposed to receive a letter from the music department um, for, already, uh, for students that were already inscribed in the university but were doing the double program with some other, some other career. So the first thing that comes to mind was something happened, a confusion between both the law school and the music department. I wasn't notified that, that I had actually been accepted. and. And to be honest, it was the highest grade of the, of the semester in music. Um, so given that I didn't know, I focused my attention in law. Um, so that was the first time that sort of music and law had, had a, <laughs> a mix-up, I think. But since then, carrying out with music and, and uh, writing songs and improvising and stuff has helped me a lot in how I've developed my professional career. Because in, in many cases, Even in your professional career as, as a lawyer, you sometimes need to be flexible in how you understand things, it, improvise a bit, um, be able to, to, to look at, at a public, let's say in, in music, more of a, at an audience, hear more of a public, um, and be able to, to send the message that you want to send. And I think there's a lot of synergy between musicians and lawyers in that way. I mean, in a different way, we have to To, to face very similar challenges. Um, and it, it has helped me a lot in doing that. And another aspect of it is that when you're practicing as a lawyer, it 
it can become very stressful at some points. Uh, there's a lot of pressure, there's a lot of things. And for me, music an is outlet. sort of a getaway. Yeah, it's mm. an outlet mm. uh, to release stress and all of this. So, so I've been writing songs and, and, uh, and uh, practicing my music and whatever, also as a way to relax, to be able to, to calm myself down, to think of something else. Otherwise, I think it would be very, very stressful for me to just dedicate myself to law and never think of anything else. So that's, that's another way music has helped me a lot. Um, and now that you're saying this, I do see that sometimes when you were as a chair, acting as a chair in some of the committees, I, I perhaps noticed like some like improvisation, <laughs> which I think is refreshing because sometimes uh, I feel that um, we get back to the same old things. And I don't know if this is an influence because of your your heart lying with, with music and jazz, but uh, perhaps, <laughs> I don't know. It, it could be, yeah, it could be. I mean, as, as you know, jazz, especially the, the maybe, maybe jazz different than free jazz, so the, the regular swing, the standards, you have a structure of a song. So you play a couple of, of, of times the melody, the, 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 the standard. And then you start improvising on the basis of the harmonic progression of the standard of the of the music, um, and I think it uh, it's interesting the analogy that that you're drawing because in in the negotiations, we also have sort of a standard. We have a structure, so we have this type of processes. We have certain types of meetings, but at some point, you need to do something different to to create different results. To try to find a different sort of of let's say of of, of a melodic um, different from from what we're used to. Um, so, so yeah, it's interesting. I, 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 ha I hadn't really thought about this, but now that you mention it, I think it, it, it has helped. I mean, it wasn't, of course, consciously done that way, but I think it, it has affected the way that, that I think in different topics, um, how, how I also think about music. Mm, well, but let's go a bit back. So you went to law school, and uh, what were some of the topics that you, you liked, that you thought that you would be working in? So I went to law school and around the third semester, so that's a year and a half after I started law school, um, I took a course on international law, public international law. Uh, it was a mandatory course, but I loved it. I thought it was a great course. I loved the idea of international law, how it was structured, everything. Um, and after that, around seventh, yeah, sixth, seventh semester, I think, I participated in what was called the Elsa Moot Court competition on WTO law. Uh, now it's called the John H. Jackson Moot Court. And it was a great experience. It was my first approach to the WTO. Um, it, was, it, was, it was great. I think, I think it, it allowed me to, to introduce myself to this say, international trade world, still under the public international law idea. It's an international organization, public international law. Um, and, I, and I loved it. And I loved it. And, and since then, I don't think there's been one year that I haven't worked something on WTO law, whether even if it's studying or teaching or litigating a case or whatever, um, I think since then WTO has been part of my life. of my law system. Yeah, part of my <laughs> life. <laughs> and actually, I think I was talking to one of our colleagues that I think like your team was pretty successful. I think it might have even won. Uh, we did. Yes, we yeah. won the <laughs> the final round here in Geneva. That was in 2000. It was the case in 2007-2008. Yeah. And like your colleagues, which which you participated, I think they're still involved in trade. So like, they are. Yeah. So so I was the youngest one in the team. Um, the one of them, I think he was the oldest one in the team, started working in the WTO the year after 
uh, we, we did the moot court. So he did a master's degree and then he immediately started working in the WTO. He stayed there for around um, maybe a year and then he left. He, was, he, he went to the private sector. My other two colleagues from the team, the team members, are currently working in the WTO. And the coach of our team currently works in the WTO. So eventually, maybe not immediately, but eventually we, we all sort of ended back in, in dealing with WTO issues. I was talking earlier to, to Yaniv, uh, and she was actually mentioning the power of the mood court and how it can be transformational, whether you, you end up working in trade or, or not. But like, I think that in your case, it, it really was like the way into the WTO. I think it was, to be honest. I think it was because it, it's a mood court that allows you to study for almost a year. I think it's like around nine months, eight months, um, a mood case. And like more practical, like... Exactly, yeah. exactly. More practical, you have to research a lot, you get to learn a lot about the organization, the legal value of, say, ministerial decisions or general counsel decisions, the agreements, how you interpret one agreement, how you interpret the other one, the use of case law, it, it's very practical. Um, and usually the, the cases that are presented as the moot court case are very, very interesting. And, and, and they are very at the vanguard of what's happening in the, in the WTO. So definitely it's something that, that allows you to understand better the organization. And if you like the topic, it's definitely one way in which you can pursue a possible future career in WTO law. So you were hooked uh, then? And then what, what did you do? So I was hooked <laughs> then. Um, <laughs> That was when we, when we concluded that, that year, the, the moot court, I was still in the university. So I had to go back. I had still one more year in law school. Uh, so I finished my law degree. And because we had won the competition, um, I had won the best orator of the, of the competition. So I was awarded um, an internship in the ICC, in the International Chamber of Commerce in Paris. So as soon as I graduated, I moved to Paris for three months to, to do the, the internship. And then I started the master's degree that was called the YELPO, the International Economic Law and Policy Master's in Barcelona, hmm. uh, that was mainly focused on WTO law. So we looked at, at um, investment, competition, and trade. Trade, I think, was the bulk of the master's. And the analysis behind trade was political, legal, and economics. So it was a very complete master's. And Right after that, I started as an intern in the appellate body secretariat, uh, right after the master's. And it was a, a fabulous experience. I mean, it was putting into practice what I have just learned, the, the experience from the moot court, uh, actually seeing how the disputes were being taken yeah. care of in the appellate body. So it was, it was great, yeah. Yeah, actually, I was talking to Yaniv, and she said that you were with her, like, uh, yeah, that you were her intern. <laughs> I was, I was, exactly, yeah. So when I started as an intern there, um, I don't know if, if that practice is still there, but, but they would assign a mentor for yeah. each intern. And, and Janif was my, my mentor. I was her main mentee. And I'm, and I'm very thankful to, to how she helped me uh, find my way in the appellate body and preparing the reports I had to prepare and, and the research that I had to do. She was a really fantastic mentor. And actually, I remember like uh, just a few weeks ago, the DG said that when you were here as an intern, you said, like, oh, you're still dealing with fisheries, so <laughs> I'm going to have <laughs> to conclude it. Exactly. So I was an intern around, I think it was 2009 or 2010. Um, and at that time, fisheries was already there. I mean, fisheries started in 2001. Um, at that time, fisheries was not very active. Yeah. 
Um, there were still some conversations around, but it wasn't very active. But it was officially still an open process of multilateral negotiations. Um, and then when I came back here as, as the ambassador of Colombia, I mean, it was, I, I was still following what was happening in the WTO. I was aware that the fisheries were still open, were, were since 2015, I think, were moving a little bit faster than before. But still, it's, it, it, it's, it's unbelievable how much someone's career can change and how much happens in between 2009, 2010, and 2018 or, or 19. And the fishery negotiations were still there. So it was, it was a bit surprising. I remember when, when I talked to her, uh, I was already the chair when, when she arrived. Uh, I did mention this and I said to her, look, it was, it was a bit surprising that I came here after being an intern. I came here as the ambassador of Colombia and they were still negotiating <laughs> fisheries. It just doesn't make any sense. So I, I, I challenged myself as a task to try to, to get this done. And uh, like I think that some people were saying that you were the hardest working man in, in <laughs> Geneva. And I mean, I, I, I saw it from, from my point of view, uh, and it's true. But I am interested to hear how, how you approach this, because you were saying that it was something that was on the table for a long time. How did you approach it maybe to do things differently? Like what was your mindset to, to approach it perhaps in a different way? Or perhaps you didn't want to know how it was approached, you wanted to approach it in your own unique way. So it was a mix, a mix of, of those two things. When, so when I took the role of, of chair of the negotiations, that was in November 2019, um, the first thing I did was to start meeting bilaterally with many members. So I opened my door to everyone to meet bilaterally and, and take a look at what they thought we should be doing. Uh, I took over this role after, I think it was four or five months with no chair yeah. in, in the process. So there were, I think, six facilitators working before me, um, trying to put together proposals and ideas, and they were trying to chair their own topic during the negotiations, and I think that was a very useful process. So I was trying to see what was there, and by, with, by speaking with members, what should be done. And there was a common um, sentence I heard, let's say, or a common idea I heard from, from a vast majority of members that said, Chair, we should move into text-based negotiations. And I said, this is great. So as a lawyer, of course, I said, so what's the text? I said, oh, no, there's no text. <laughs> so I said, so what do you mean work on, uh, start working on text-based text negotiations if there's no text? The previous text we had was um, the famous 274 Rev 6 text that was the one that, that uh, was carried into the ministerial conference in Buenos Aires in 2017, that after that had evolved even further. Um, and to be honest, it was a very difficult document. It was very, very long. It had, I think, at 533 sets of brackets, I think, and 13 alternatives. It was something basically unbeatable. Uh, it was more of a compilation of proposals than an actual text. So, so very quickly, I realized that the first thing that we had to try to do in the negotiating group was to build an actual text that could serve as the basis for negotiations. Um, and I think that was a, an interesting turning point in the process because then the focus was, of course, keep discussing all the substantive issues, but discussing it with a purpose, not just discussing them and try to find a, a, a miracle that somehow a text would appear, but instead working into, into finding that text that we needed to build uh, collectively with the negotiating group on rules. So, so that's, it's a bit based on what, what was done before, what was being done at the time, and my own, let's say, more of a pragmatic approach in saying, 
if we are moving into text-based negotiations, or that's what members want, we need to have a text on which to base those text-based negotiations. So the first task that I put myself was, we need to develop a text. And the first version of that text came about in June 2020. Yeah. So I don't know how, that's what, seven, seven months after, I think. And in your mind, like you had like a, an end goal, that we have to achieve this. But sometimes during the process, like the progress is very minimal. How, how, do, how does this affect you personally? Is it discouraging? Is it, is it a challenge or? I, I would say it was more of a challenge, but I would say that it took a lot of patience because it, it can be a bit frustrating that after weeks and weeks of meetings in one particular topic, as you were saying, sometimes progress was minimal. But at the same time, we are facing multilateral negotiations. This is trying to get everyone, and by everyone I mean 164 governments in the WTO, to agree on, on something. Um, so it's not easy. So, so it's, it's very important to be patient, but also to be cognizant that progress will take time. I mean, to get everyone to agree to something, or at least not to object to ideas or anything, takes a bit of time because members need, in, in different ways, they need time to process the information, to consult with capitals, to, to show some flexibility. They need time to be able to do that. Um, so at, at some point during the process, I think it was a bit frustrating that the progress was not as fast as I would have hoped. But at the same time, every bit of progress had to be uh, recognized. It had to be, I wouldn't say celebrated, but it had to be recognized in a way that it created a positive momentum. So instead of saying, we're not having progress as fast as we should, it was better to create a positive attitude in members and saying, we are getting progress. So before we weren't, now we are getting progress. Even if it's just a bit, now we have to build on that progress and keep on going. And I think that was the part of the success in the process was to build this positive attitude in the membership, a positive momentum, Uh, that members were aware that we were making progress and creating that, that narrative that I think it was true. We were creating, we were creating progress. Otherwise, when, when, when you're stuck because progress is not fast enough or you're frustrated and the narrative becomes, we're not working as fast as we should, uh, members, are, members themselves will still will start feeling a bit frustrated and it becomes a self-fulfilling uh, prophecy where, where instead of going forward, you end up creating a narrative that gets us stuck. So every bit of progress, even if, even if internally I was a bit frustrated that it wasn't as fast as I wished, it was important to recognize it and build on that little bit and, and keep on moving, keep on creating that momentum. This is very important that you're saying, and I think that the way that you reflected this when you would address the, the members was positive, but as you were saying, it was also internal, like you also believed it, because I think that that aspect is, is key, that you also believe it. If you're trying to say something which you don't believe, like I think people can see through you. And this is what I also meant about like you being patient and being, being honest about it. And I think that this also helped the process. Yeah, yeah, I think so too. I think um, I, I, I like to think that, that members saw me as, as, a, as a chair that was transparent, that was sharing what, what I was thinking, and because that's, that's what I was doing. And I was very frank with members. I was never trying to hide anything from members. Um, even if at some point it meant saying, look, we are not moving as fast as we should, but we have to capitalize on this bit of progress that was made. How do we do this? And I was constantly, I think that at no point Um, I stopped consulting with members in bilaterally or with small groups or 
and, and I said this repeatedly to the membership, my door is always open to consult with anyone at any time. Um, and I think that helped a lot because members, it was very important to meet with members bilaterally to see what they, their, their position really was, where flexibility could be found, to have a frank discussion with members. Because sometimes, and, and you know this, you've been in, this, in these meetings, sometimes when you meet in the plenary, you meet with everyone else, at, in those meetings, sometimes positions has, have to be uh, strengthened or have to, be, have to be a little bit more hard-lined so that members don't feel they're losing leverage in, in their negotiating strategy. So sometimes it was better that to hear this in the big room and then meet with some of them or with all of them bilaterally or in small groups to try to find really where progress could be made and start putting some pressure on those on those possible pressure points for members. But where this is important the the difference between like the prelater like the the plenary meetings and the small groups. But where you from the point of view of the chair, where did you see those spaces? Like how did you recognize those spaces where you could uh, like perhaps pressure a bit more or get something? Well, I, I think part of the, of the role of the chair is to read between lines in, the, in all members' statements. Uh, in, the, in the big room, in the plenary meetings, as, as I was saying, members sometimes need to, to strengthen their positions or seem like they're a bit hardline in some positions, where in smaller groups you can find a little bit more flexibility. So the way they, they speak, the way they, they present their proposals, the way uh, maybe some things are not necessarily coherent with what they're saying in this room, with what they said in a smaller group before, or maybe even in bilateral consultations. Um, uh, that's, that's where you start picking up the little differences in how things are being presented. And then I started exploring those little differences to see if the difference was a reflection of possible flexibility somewhere. So I started meeting with them bilaterally or in smaller groups and testing some ideas with them to see how maybe things could be moved. Um, it, it's amazing how sometimes we get stuck with a with specific language of a discipline, of a provision or whatever, when the underlying objective is common. So it was very important, some of the very sensitive issues we had in the negotiations, to identify that we were all pursuing the same objective, the exact same objective but we were just having disagreements on how that objective was being reached by specific drafting. So if you were able to recognize that, the discussion is different. That discussion is no longer on what we're trying to achieve. The discussion is, this is what we're trying to achieve. Now, how do we draft this in a way that we actually achieve this? Uh, and it creates comfort for everyone that this is what we're trying to do. So the way you tackle the discussions has a strong impact on the result of those discussions. But in order to recognize this, pretty much like you said, you had to, you had to pretty much be devoted to this. Like this was your, you were breathing, living this 24/7 for years. It yes, <laughs> yes, it was, it was. Um, I dedicated a lot of time to it, uh, and I have to thank my my mission, my the Colombian mission uh, here in Geneva, because they gave me a lot of support in all other things. So of course I was still taking care of the Colombian interests. Um, but I was, they, they were very flexible in, 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 in being able to meet with me at times where I, was, where I wasn't available. So during, my, during the working day, I was doing a lot of meetings, whether bilaterally or, or in small groups or even the plenary sessions. So I, as the chair, I, I couldn't just leave the plenary session and say, oh, sorry, I have a call or I have a meeting. Uh, so I was meeting with my mission in, in 
in unregular times, let's say, um, during COVID, of course, there was more flexibility because it was mostly virtual, so we had more flexibility to meet. And of course, I was following everything that we had to do and looking at the statements and following everything else. But I, I, I must confess that I had to extend my working time during the day. And I think that was a, 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 an advantage I had was that um, the time difference with Colombia played to my benefit. Because when it was the night was starting in Geneva, in Colombia, they were having lunch. So at some point I said to them, look, if we need to have a meeting virtually by Zoom or Teams or whatever, please try to schedule that meeting in, in your afternoon so I can attend the meeting in my night. So there were a couple of days where I had to extend my working hours quite a bit up to midnight or a little bit later so that during the day I could focus on the fisheries negotiations. And I think that, that for a multilateral negotiation where you have to listen to everyone, you need time. Yeah. I mean, that's just the, a fact. You just need time to do it. You mentioned the, that how instrumental was the mission here in Colombia, but I imagine other people were involved in this as well. Oh, absolutely, absolutely, Rodolfo. And uh, of course, my, my mission was, was key in helping support my work in the other topics, as I mentioned. Um, but I have to thank the, the Secretariat team. They did such a fantastic job in supporting me as chair, but supporting the whole negotiating group because they received emails, I would say even hundreds of emails, almost every day from members asking questions or asking about a meeting or requesting consultations. They helped me build the schedule for consultations. They helped me think um, around the ideas of the text and substantively uh, advised me on some issues. Um, so it was, I mean, I, I really have to thank this, the secretary team for their, for their work. I think it was, it was fantastic and it's a clear example of the quality and professionalism of the secretary staff we have in the organization. And I, I also have to thank my wife <laughs> yes. because of course, of course, many of the chores that, that I was supposed to be doing at home, um, she took over them willingly, of course, um, so that I could focus in the negotiations. I was arriving pretty late at night, not just in the ministerial, but we had during the long period. weeks. Yeah. yeah, during the two and a half years, we had long weeks during COVID. I was basically almost the only ambassador actually going away from, from the house to go into the organization to be able to hold meetings because we had to control the platform from the, from the meeting rooms. Uh, so while everyone else was taking the, the, the meetings at home with their family, etc., I had to be almost all day, all days, every day in, in the organization holding those meetings. And that was very important for the, for the process. But I think that, that, uh, that my wife has to, had to stand a lot of, of and had a, had a lot of patience throughout this, this time uh, with me. So I really have to thank her, thank her for, the, for her patience, for supporting me as well in all those things I was supposed to be doing at home that, that I wasn't really uh, able to do. And she took over over that um, those 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 topics. So so no, it was it was great. I'm really thankful to her. And I imagine maybe she even became an expert in fisheries as well. Well, yeah. I mean, <laughs> I think I think I think even in my sleep, I was talking <laughs> I was talking about fisheries and negotiations, and I was I was actually dreaming, having I don't know if dreams or nightmares. <laughs> I'm, I'm still to 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 make my mind about it, but uh, in meetings and stuff. So I was I was telling her. Um, how things were going, and, and she shared some frustrations. She shared some some excitement as well. Um, and after the ministerial, actually, when I was talking to her a couple of days ago, she mentioned that the only time, and I mentioned this earlier today, the only time I was a bit negative on the negotiations, I was actually considering the option of not having a fisheries agreement. I sent a message to her on Thursday 
of the ministerial at 7.58 p.m. I remember the exact time. It was a 30-second voice note in which I was saying, we might not get this done. And, and she, she then said that when she received this, this message, she cried because she was frustrated. And it was, it was weird because when I re-listened to that message, 10 minutes after I sent it, I heard my voice and it wasn't me. Yes. So I said, oh my God, no, this is not me. And, and that's when I realized we have to go back and get this done. I'm not letting this slip away in the last minute. Uh, and then she confessed that when she heard this, this message, she, she cried a bit because she knew that I was very, very frustrated. Um, so yeah, a lot of support from her. All my thanks to my wife. She's as much as I am of this process. Yes, and this process that you're talking about, uh, I think it gets even more compressed during the, the ministerial. So what you were saying happened, but within days or hours. And it was a bit of a roller coaster. Like at one point you believed that we were close, then we were far, then we were close again. How did you see this from, from your vantage point? Well, I, you're right. I think it was a roller coaster, not just substantively speaking or procedurally, but emotionally yeah. as well. Because I, I remember on Thursday after the ministerial was extended, um, on Thursday when I, I slept, I think maybe 30 minutes that day, from Wednesday to Thursday. And when I presented again the version of the text that we were looking at the ministerial, um, everything seemed fine. Everyone seemed like they were happy with the text. Uh, I've had already some discussions with, with, with many members throughout the previous day and night. And suddenly around midday, maybe after, after midday, everything exploded. And it, suddenly it seemed like we were not having a fisheries agreement. And it was, it was a horrible feeling because after two and a half years of, of very intensive work with the membership, with, by everyone, not just me, but by the whole membership, feeling like in the last minutes of the ministerial, things could, be, could go sideways and end up with no fishery subsidies agreement it was just completely unacceptable. I mean, in my mind, it was, it was unacceptable. So that afternoon and basically that night, uh, most of my time was devoted to solve some of the issues. Some were substantive, some were procedural, some were emotional, psychological, let's say, <laughs> uh, on frustration, on, yeah. on things that were going around the ministerial. And it's, it's understandable. I mean, the ministerial, everyone is running around, we're running out of time. Um, so it's very, very difficult for the process not to become a little bit messy in one way or the other. So frustration was building up. So I had to tackle substantive issues, procedural issues, but also some frustration, some emotional um, say issues uh, from the membership. But at, I remember at some point I said to myself, maybe we're not having a fisheries agreement. It was the first time in two and a half years that I, I doubted. I doubted it was a possibility. Um, I ate a couple of, of mini sandwiches that somebody gave me and 10 minutes afterwards I said, no, this is, not, this is not happening. I'm not going to let this slip away in the last minute. And I head back and I started again working out with members to try to find what the solution could be and how to, to, to explain. And there was a lot of misunderstanding of how the process had been developed. So I remember I had to explain to, 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 uh, so to some members how the process actually took place in the ministerial and how things were being evolved in the text for them to understand that nobody was being excluded, nobody was, nobody was trying to work anything behind the scenes or, or behind closed doors. But instead, uh, I, th I think many members realized that there was an internal misunderstanding 
possibly based on rumors or, or based on just assumptions on how things have been done before in the ministerial, um, in a way in which the frustration was alleviated. And I think me members understood how things were being done, and that allowed us to continue the work. But at some point, I, was, I, I must confess, I was scared. For the first time in two and a half years, I said, oh my God, this, this might not happen. And then, if, I mean, that's just unacceptable. I, was, I, was, I wasn't going to desist until the last minute. And also, I think, uh, I think that DG mentioned this, that there were a lot of negative voices. At some point, like from the outside, or sometimes also maybe within here, at some point you have to block that out and just like see it through from your perspective, I assume. Yeah, I mean, of, of course we have to listen to, to what everyone is saying in, in the WTO, from the membership, from outside, because of course we're trying to respond to a, to a global issue in the negotiations. We're trying to respond to the depletion of fish stocks, to the, the risk that the, the livelihoods of the fishing communities, especially the artisanal fishing communities, were facing. Um, so, so it's important to listen to the outside to see what, how things could be done and maybe have some elements to be considered in the negotiations that are not usually present in the minds of members. Um, but at the same time, even for positive or negative comments, there's also a reality in the negotiations. Uh, we're trying to get something agreed by 164 governments with very different and clear defensive and offensive interests. So trying to get a perfect agreement, it's impossible because perfect means so many different things to whoever you ask. So if I ask member A, perfect means something. If I ask member D, E or F, it means something completely different. So there's no such thing as a perfect agreement in a multilateral negotiation. I think the perfect agreement is where we find the balance of the objective that we're, we're, we're pursuing and that we comply with that objective and a balance in which it creates enough comfort for members of what they're agreeing to. And I think that's what we reached in the ministerial. So I wouldn't say that I was blocking the, the negative voices, but I was trying to see the underlying substantive either concerns or maybe even uh, argument on how we could improve the process or improve the substance um, so I was trying to pick on the so the silver linings even from the from the negative voices. Yeah, and, and I think also you mentioned like not even the positive. You don't have to believe everything that's good that is said, and also everything that is bad. <laughs> Absolutely. You know, when when I was I was selected by the membership as chair, I remember that was a Friday when I went to the WTO and it was celebrated and everything. The Monday after that Friday, so three days after, some of the news items I received were. It was a huge surprise. They selected a very young ambassador. He's not going to be competent. This is a very important role. And somehow he got elected and there was pressure from the DG and pressure from this and that. And I, I must say that the first news I got after my selection was reading this very, very negative article. I said, oh my God, I actually questioned myself a bit and said, are, are they right? Am I maybe too young to do this? Maybe not, um, I don't know. It's, it's easy to question yourself. And then I said, you know what, I, I don't believe this. I don't believe this, I just, I just think you need to put a lot of positive energy to this, dynamism, create a different dynamic in the negotiations and get it done. So part of my own personal task as well was to prove, to prove them wrong. I said, I just don't believe that age should be a factor in, in how things can be done. And I started working very hard precisely to prove those negative voices wrong. And I think, I, I, I like to think that I did, but Time will tell. I think maybe you did. <laughs> <laughs> but but is this is important that you're saying. I mean, in the region, 
in Chile, there's a really young president, and there's also, like, in the region, there's a lot of, uh, on the younger side, uh, leaders, ministers at that level. But in, in diplomacy, it's a very traditional, a traditional environment. How, this is something that you were struggling with yourself as a way to prove it, but how did you have to assert yourself with others so that they wouldn't have, like, these concerns? Um, I, th I think it was basically hard work. It was hard work. I mean, it, the membership had selected me as the chair. So there was some trust put to me um, or given to me in the selection process. So, so I, I think I, I, I just had to, to create enough comfort from the membership that I was ready to work. I was ready to work intensely so that we can achieve the outcome that we're supposed to achieve. Um, and I think members started noticing this quite soon because it, it did become a, a bit of an intensive process. Um, I, I might be to blame, uh, but I, I really wanted to get this, this done. I think it was very important for the membership. It was really important for the WTO. It was very important for the sustainability of the oceans and the sustainability of the livelihoods of the fishing communities. And I truly believed it. So I think it was something that, that you know, there's, I, th I think a few times in one's career, maybe one's life, in which you're granted an opportunity to make a contribution to the world. It's not, it's not common, it's not frequent. Maybe it doesn't even happen in one's lifetime. And when, when I started studying everything, that the reasons why we're negotiating everything, the disciplines behind them, the proposals, how members have been engaged before, I very quickly realized that this has been an opportunity that had, had been granted to me. I mean, I'm not the one deciding, I'm not the one negotiating with members as the chair. I was the one helping them negotiate and setting up the process in a way in which it creates the, the dynamic that allows them to negotiate and reach a conclusion. But that was the opportunity I was granted. I mean, I really felt that it would be, and it, I think it is, a great contribution to the world, what we had just achieved uh, a month ago. And at the time I said, this is something that could help a lot the organization, could help a lot ocean sustainability. And that's why I was deeply convinced of the importance of what we were doing, and I was relentless in, in, in the way that we approached the negotiations. I was not going to desist whether I was receiving pressure from members, from the outside, from whoever, I was so convinced of the importance of the negotiations and the outcome that it just had to be done. And I mean, this is a, a really big step, uh, but there's still some work to be done. How do you see the, the work? Because I think that this achieved two things. First, make everyone believe, like inside the WTO and also outside, that, that, we, that we're back, that we can do this, uh, so we can build on this. But now it's the specifics. How are we going to approach the, the next steps in fisheries negotiations specifically? Yeah, so, so how I see this is we got a, um, a very good agreement from ministers and we got an additional mandate to keep in discussing the issue um, with certain specifics. And this is the second wave of negotiations that we need to launch. And I think in that second wave, it's important to touch base again with all members to see what they're thinking. Because there are several options, and already, already I've heard from members different views on how to approach a second wave of negotiations. Do we pick up from, from previous texts, previous disciplines we had, or should we think of different approaches or do something differently? So I think it's important to have a first sit down with members, maybe bilaterally, maybe in small groups, maybe in the plenary eventually, uh, to listen to everyone and see what, how they're seeing the second wave of negotiations being launched, um, and start from there start from there because now we have a very very strong basis 
um, in my view, the, the agreement we achieved in the ministerial um, allowed us to, to tick the box of the SDG mandate, the mandate from ministers from, from 2017 and MC11, um, and now we have an additional mandate. And I think this is a, a clear recognition from members and from ministers that this is such an important topic that it can always be improved. If, it, if it's about sustainability and helping the oceans, it's something that we can keep on moving. So, so I think we have to say, recognize what was, what was achieved in the ministerial, celebrate it, and quickly move into the second wave of negotiations. But I think it's important for members to start thinking, maybe take a couple of weeks, maybe this summer break that we're about to go into um, to, to think through how they really want to, to discuss the issues and how we can start now evolving and enhancing some of the disciplines uh, and even maybe adding some disciplines to further contribute to ocean sustainability. Well, um, I think uh, it has really been great talking to you. Thank you for sharing your views. And I was really, I was really impressed by the way that you approached this task that <laughs> it seemed impossible, but somehow in your mind it wasn't. Well, again, I, I think I was so convinced of the importance of actually achieving it that I was convinced myself that impossible is not a word that I, us I, I commonly use in my, in my vocabulary. So we had to turn, th that was a big challenge, to be honest, to, to convince in a way or persuade members that this was not an impossible task, that it was actually doable and that it was there. It was right in front of them. And we just had to structure everything in a way that it becomes uh, evident for them that it was possible. And perhaps is I don't know, maybe it has to do with the youth in you that makes you believe that it's possible. Because when you are like already a veteran, you become jaded. And perhaps you weren't there yet. It could be. It could be. You know, I'm, 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 uh, I'm convinced that for some processes, for some files, not just in the WTO, but overall, uh, sometimes you need, say, fresh blood that think a little bit different, that is not, um, is not afraid of of trying something else, of having different approaches, uh, and explore different possibilities. And we've heard this recently. I think in the last TNC meeting we had, or the informal hot we had a couple of weeks ago, there was a common, a common idea throughout the membership. That is, we need to think differently, we have to act differently. And that was my approach in, in the negotiations as soon as I came. We really need to think differently and act differently, because if we keep doing the same things all over again, how can we expect a different result? So, and so I agree with you. I think that part of, of the advantages I had was precisely my, my youth. And just to conclude, when we were on the Friday morning, when we were gobbling the, the, outcome, the outcomes of the ministerial, someone was saying like, oh yeah, Ambassador Wills is like a rock star. And I asked, is he like Mick Jagger or, or like uh, Brian Adams? <laughs> 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 and someone was saying, no, it's like Mick Jagger but perhaps another one, like more a jazz musician? Wow, no, well, I mean, a rock star is a rock star. <laughs> <laughs> so that's a, that's a huge compliment. Um, well, I don't see myself as, as a rock star. I think I just see myself as someone that was doing his job and, and, and was convinced on the importance of doing it well. Um, but I, I, I must confess that it felt really satisfying when we got it done. Uh, it, it was a relief, of course, on my part, but, but I also think that the outcome we got was, was so good that it wasn't just ticking the box off, we did it. Yeah. But we did it with a very good outcome. So, so that's, that's what was very gratifying. And it was great to see the happiness around the membership. Everyone it wasn't, was it wasn't happy. just Everyone me, everyone was, was happy. happy. Yeah. 
and, and they were thrilled and, and they, they, they were very supportive of the process and at the end they wanted to, to hug each other and congratulate each other. Um, and that was, I think that was possibly one of the most satisfying images I got through the ministerial when members were so happy about the result we got that they were congratulating each other uh, frank, frantically. I think it was, it, was, yeah. it was very enthusiastic. Yeah, it was. Well, thank you very much, Ambassador. Thank you for your time. It was a great conversation. No, thank you, Rodolfo. It was a pleasure to, to talk to you. This was the Rodolfo Rivas Project. I hope you loved it. Can you dig it?